Hello, my name is Sam Clements and welcome to The Love of Cinema, a Picture House podcast proudly supported by Kia, powering independent cinema. This is our monthly review show, folks. This is November 2023. Rules of the game. We are going to pick four films coming to your local picture house. Films that we think are really important for picture house. These are by no means the only four films coming out uh, in November. We've got a new Marvel film, for example, The Marvels. We've got a new Ridley Scott film, for example, Napoleon. But these are four that we particularly wanted to shine the spotlight on. My role in this podcast is to be kind of the MC. I'm the floating voice uh, to link our film conversations together. And what I love about this show is that every month we are joined by two brand new film critics, two different voices, uh, and ask them their opinions on our four chosen movies. On our November edition of the podcast, I am delighted to say we are joined by Frida Cooper and Sean Wilson, two excellent film writers, podcasters, journalists, and, and Frida even does voiceovers. So uh, so yes, so we've got Frida Cooper and Sean Wilson, and we are going to cover an incredible selection of movies. Our first film is the Palm Door winning film, and <laughs> as you're about to hear, the Palm Dog, the award for the best dog at the Cannes Film Festival, um, the Palm Door winning film, Anatomy of a Fool, uh, which tore up a storm at the Cannes Film Festival back in May earlier this year, and I'm delighted to say it's coming to Picture House Cinemas on the 10th of November. It's, uh, it, I mean, this film blew me away. I'm, I'm, it's particularly fresh in my mind because I watched it again for a second time the other night and it's it's directed and, and written by Justin Trier and it stars Sandra Huller who is giving such a wonderful performance in this film it's an incredible showcase uh, for her and uh, and yeah I mean it, I mean that's enough to, to see it alone but it's a gripping story um, a, a fantastical thriller of a movie a proper old school courtroom drama style picture and, and it had me on the edge of my seat I loved this film Anywho, you didn't come here to hear my opinions on this film. Uh, let's pass over to Frida and Sean to hear what they made of the movie. I need you to be precise. Tell me everything about the day died. Okay. I didn't realize it was so high. Yeah. I went upstairs to my bedroom. That's when I heard Daniel scream. Mama! That's it. Okay. The autopsy report is inconclusive. I think he fell. An accidental fall is gonna be hard to defend. Nobody's gonna believe that. So, Frida, your thoughts on anatomy of a fall first? What did you think? <sighs> Very easy to say what I said of an think of Anatomy of a Fall because actually this is the second time that I've seen it, which kind of gives you an idea of how much I like it. <laughs> um, I mean, this is a a procedural, if you like, a courtroom drama, but it's kind of a special one because it won the Palm Door this year. And interestingly, I've just found out the dog in it also won the Palm Dog. So this is a pretty decent film. <laughs> you would not <laughs> expect a sort of courtroom drama procedural to win the Palm Door, to be quite honest. But I think what's interesting about this one is that it is probably, I would hesitate to say revolutionised, but certainly changed the genre. Because when I first saw the title and I saw the poster, it actually made me think of the Otto Preminger classic from, I think it's 1959, Anatomy of a Murder which actually changed the genre yes. at the time. Mm. And I think, it's, yeah, that's the one. And I think this is doing the same because this is, it's a court case, but essentially it's a search for the truth and how difficult that can be if you're in the situation of, of having to find that truth. So it's, it's much, much more than, I don't know, putting CSI in court, as it were. <laughs> Well, I think you said it beautifully. <laughs> That's we a lot we to had a discussion on. about this. <laughs> I, I know, I know what I know what to say to you. Uh, he, um, you said that it puts you in in the juror's position, and it really does. And yeah, the does. the ambiguity, the, the lovely ambiguity around Sandra Huller's performance. I mean, she's just. I mean, she's a terrific 
a performer I love, Tony Erdman, and she's brilliantly unreadable in this as she mm. unravels in front of you. You think, oh, okay, I didn't know that about the marriage or oh, I didn't quite know, know that detail. And you're forced to interrogate her background in the manner of the characters, which is a, a brilliant device, I think. Yeah, and, and also with her character, when she's actually in the dock giving evidence, she's having to speak in what is not her native language. And that m means that she really struggles because in that situation, there's all sorts of nuances and implications that are, are really quite hard to understand and get across if this isn't your language. And worse still, she's faced by this prosecutor who is an absolute master of a throwaway line that will sow doubt into anybody's mind. He also has the distracting similarity to Judge Robert Rinder to look at as well, but that's beside the point. <laughs> but he is a very, very clever prosecutor yeah. and he's very smart. And for her to be able to keep up with him is actually very, very difficult. What I was thinking of, of course, is it isn't all about her because, of course, there's the husband that's involved and there's also the son. And the son actually plays quite a, a critical role and he's brilliant young actor called uh, Milo Machado Gra Grane. And he has a very serious visual impairment. And I won't say more than that because it would kind of spoil the plot. But he is actually quite crucial to the story. But again, what he creates is, is actually more ambiguity. Because it, as I said earlier, this is my second time watching it. I still don't know the answer. I'm closer to it but I still don't know conclusively. Yeah, you're close to it. That's the idea. You know, you, you, you find you have to sift through what you remember, what evidence has been presented to you, what are the various players in, in this drama. And Justine uh, Trier, yeah. um, the, the, the filmmaker, the, the, the unfussy is the word. It's very clinical. It's very methodical, which is what you need. You don't want visual distractions in a story like this. It's all about the writing and the performance and the, direct, the, the direction backs off. And you are thoroughly engrossed by just how, you know, ironically, the, the frame is very clean, which throws, <laughs> it sort of throws to light all these revelations and all the skeletons in the closet. I, I thought it was terrific. I'm just, just superb. It is. It's, it, it's fantastic. Definitely a worthy winner. And the dog was a worthy winner as well. Let's go somewhere new. See worlds we've never seen before so that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars, inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia, movement that inspires. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Frida. Great to hear that you enjoyed Anatomy of a Fool as much as I did. It's uh, definitely a film that... It's kind of a fun one to see at the cinema, actually, because it has an ending, which I don't want to say too much, uh, but it has an ending which you know, can be interpreted in many different ways. And it was just really fun to hear what my neighbors made of the film, what the people in the lobby on the way out were saying. I think everyone has a different opinion uh, of it, and which I guess is true of most films, but I guess this one, people are more vocal because of the story there. But um I, yeah, it was it was fascinating. So I really, really enjoyed um, talking to a stranger at the end of the film as the credits rolled. It was just one of those films where you're, you're sort of bursting to say something to the nearest set of ears. Uh, and I was very glad to be that person's set of ears uh, there. But uh, yeah, highly recommend Anatomy of a Fall. So that's in cinemas on the 10th of November. Moving on, our next film of the month is Saltburn, the new film from Emerald Fennel. We uh, previously saw Emerald Fennel's last film, Promising Young Woman, uh, a couple of years ago, but because of the pandemic, I think it mostly was seen on, on home. I think it had a, it definitely in the UK went straight to Sky Cinema and, and various other streaming services. I, I think it has had the odd cinema release since, but, uh, but yes, I think that most people saw that film at home, which is a shame because it's a gorgeous film and it's all the more reason to go and see Saltburn at the cinema. You can see what Emerald Fennel can really do with a big canvas. Uh, the music in this film is wonderful. The production design is incredible. And the cast are fantastic. It's a big old cast. 
I'm not going to list everybody's name, but it's got a wonderful performance from Barry Keogh at the center. We also see Jacob Elordi in there, and uh, and there's Richard E. Grant is is in it in a sort of a smaller supporting role, but oh, Lordy, does he leave an impression? Um, and then there's many other wonderful actors involved indeed. Anyway, again, you didn't come here to hear my opinion of the film. Let's jump over to Sean and Frida and see what they made of Saltburn. Did you know there was a college Christmas party tonight? NFI. Me and you, not fucking invited. You all right? Yeah, I've got a flat tire. Take my bike. Hey, that is so kind. Thank you. I'm sorry I don't know your name. I'm, uh, I'm Felix. Oliver. Oliver. <laughs> Oliver, I love you. I love you. I love you. All right, cheers, Ollie. My parents, they've got problems. What kind of? What do you mean, problems? I don't think I'll ever go home again. Well, why don't you come home with me? Come to Saltburn. Right, brain picking time. Because I haven't seen this yet, Sean, so I'm not quite sure what to expect of it. What did you make of it? I mean, do you think I'm going to like it? Well, it's a lot. Uh, it's Emerald Fennel uh, firing on all cylinders in the wake of her um, Oscar winning success with Promising Young Woman here, obviously sticking it to the upper 1% with malicious glee, shall I say, <laughs> uh, with a cast that are obviously relishing the opportunity to do so. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, it's another very, very fine showcase for for, for Barry Keoghan, obviously Oscar nominated for the Banshees of Inisherin, and here playing the ostracised Oxford Uni student who effectively inveigles his way into the life of an upper crust um, aristocratic family who live at the eponymous Saltburn. And it's, yeah, it, it's a riot of bad behaviour. <laughs> if that sounds appealing, <laughs> then then yes. Yes, reasonably. I've lo- I've looked at the trailer actually, and uh, to start with, it sort of made me think of Brideshead Revisited. But actually, by the time I got to the end of it, I wondered whether it was more like Brideshead Rejuvenated. <laughs> it's a perfect description. I mean, Brideshead Revisited on speed would would be would be a really really good one. Um, there is actually a reference to the the, <laughs> the work of um, oh. <laughs> Evelyn War. Evelyn War is actually cited in in the drama, so you, you get an idea of where it's coming from with with with, it, with its pedigree, with its literary pedigree. There's also more than a touch of Patricia Highsmith's talented Mr. Ripley in there. The idea of is one's identity can one manifest one's identity on somebody else? Can you take somebody else's identity? And Barry Keoghan has got that very, almost, uh, again, like I said with Sandra Huller, very unreadable quality to him that is very cinematic and very compelling. And he's the lodestone of this film. He he is superb in it. Yeah, I noticed, oh gosh, Jacob Elordi, Joseph Elordi. I can't remember his, his Christian name now. Yeah, Jacob Elordi, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's also in Priscilla where he plays Elvis. And I thought, well, he's quite good at accents as Elvis. I wondered what he was like in this, because presumably he's playing a Brit. He is, and he's doing received pronunciation. He does it very, very convincingly. And the idea of this aristocratic guy taking Barry Keoghan's isolated character, Oliver, who's from the north of England, under his wing, and he... Sort of initiates him in this very lurid aristocratic family that's presided over by Rosamund Pike and Richard E. Grant, both of whom absolutely tear chunks out of the scenery and have great fun doing it. And it's just it's beautifully shot by Linus Sangren and the, the the soundtrack. I mean, the soundtrack is from my university period, mid two thousands. So MGMT fans will have a will have a real ball <laughs> with it. I don't know if it cuts deep like Promising Young Woman did because Promising Young Woman was was scabrous and a, a, an incredibly disquieting study of of consent and conversations around consent. This, I think, stays more on the surface. This is more about reveling in the outer pleasures rather than getting its fingers stuck in, I think, even though there's there's a lot going on. Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's it's good fun. I, th- I think I'm going to have my hands full with this one. I mean, I am looking forward to it because the, the cast on it looks looks terrific. And I, I do actually kind of like Emerald Fennell's style as a director. So it sounds like she's really socking it to the aristocracy on this one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it really, it really doesn't pull any punches. And when I say, I've, I've said this to you in reference to this film before, when I use the word bathwater, 
those who've seen it will know what I mean by that. It, it invokes a profoundly visceral response, as do several <laughs> scenes in, in the movie. And just full credit to Barry Keoghan for being a fearless performer and really, really running with it. <laughs> and uh, where does the bathwater scene come? Is it early or is it later on? I'm, I'm just sort of preparing oh, myself for tomorrow night. It, it... <laughs> I would say ooh, midway through. Yeah, you'll you'll see it. You'll see it being linked. Oh, okay. You'll see it being set up. <laughs> yeah, this. Um, it, just it, it's just not before I get too woman, comfortable, then. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'll let you know what I think of it later. <laughs> well, there we go. And the interesting thing about that interview, and when we recorded it, was Frida had not seen the film. I think the evening after the, that conversation, Frida went to the cinema to watch it. And now she's only gone and talked to the director of the film, Emerald Fennel. Uh, so please uh, enjoy this conversation between Frida and the director of Saltburn, Emerald Fennel. Emerald, congratulations on the film. Uh, a really wickedly enjoyable experience. <laughs> you, um, you wrote it, you directed it. Where did the inspiration come from? I mean, I have to say, I did spot quite a few Evelyn War references in there, including a little <laughs> teddy bear. Well, I think that's it. So I kind of really wanted to, I really, really love to look at genre and to sort of... Um, yeah, to kind of use it as a vehicle, I think, to sort of maybe slyly put some other, yeah, introduce some kind of more complicated ideas maybe. So I, um, I yeah, really wanted to look at this kind of thing that we have, which is, you know, the country house, the sort of gothic British country house novel and film, which is, you know, something happened in a country house that none of us could ever forget. And so, yeah, it's, it's absolutely evil in war, but it's also the go-between and Rebecca and the line of beauty and this little stranger. It's, it's kind of, it's really interesting. The more you look at it, the more kind of, the more you start to see these sort of recurring themes. And they're all the things that I suppose I'm most interested in, in this film, which is sort of power and class and sex. You just like being subversive, don't you? I actually, <laughs> do you know, it's a really interesting one. I don't know that I do. It would be a lot easier if I didn't. <laughs> To be honest, it would be a lot easier to make a more sort of straightforward version of the sorts of things I like to make. But what I do like to do, what is important to me is to be honest with myself or try to be as honest with myself as I think a person can be, which is to, yeah, interrogate why it is that I feel the way I feel about things or why people in general feel the way they feel about things, what people do when they're really in the grips of like kind of sort of hideous desire you know and nothing in this film is very far away from sort of the gothic tradition there's nothing that wouldn't have been equally as shocking as you know any of the Bronte's work when that came out or I'm not suggesting anything like as good as them but but the part of the gothic genre is that it's subversive is that it pushes is that it mm -hmm. takes are the things that we want and sort of looks at the darkness of them, I guess. I wonder if you'd call this um, Brideshead Rejuvenated. I mean, <laughs> I think it's sort of in many ways, it's playing with genre in a way that is supposed to make it feel familiar because genre is only useful when it's familiar enough that we think we know what we're going to get and then we don't get it. And so... It's important that things feel, you know, well-worn, that there's an awareness, there's a kind of conversation to be had with the things that are its predecessors. And I would say the go-between in many ways is kind of more of a, it shares more DNA with maybe in some ways. But I think that it quite quickly departs from mm. that place. And so it's sort of, it's always an incredibly delicate balance of sort of, you know, you don't want to be so meta that something's alienating yeah. or it's pastiche, but you do also need to acknowledge the work that's come before it. Because all of the work, you know, I mean, Brideshead does so, like, refers and talks about and is in conversation with Jude the Obscure so much, you know, and then, and then you look at sort of something like Atonement, which is in conversation with all of those. Yeah. So it is a kind of, it's interesting that this genre tends to have 
it's a kind of, yeah, it's a sort of relay race. I think the scene that everybody talks about, about the film, and I was told about this by several people who saw the film before I did. Yeah, is, that um, was bad of them. But I know, I know. It's Barry and the bath. <laughs> yeah. That moment in the bath. Where did the idea come from for that? I mean, I think it, I think it just, well, I mean, it came from the place that all of these thoughts come from. You know. There was nothing in particular that inspired it. It was just something that you created. Yeah. Wow. I mean, but doesn't it feel familiar to you? I'm not suggesting. No. <laughs> Actually, really? I've got to say, perhaps I'm too nice and innocent. No, no, um, but, but I don't think, but I think, I don't mean, uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I just mean, no. I mean that I don't literally mean the exact thing. Yeah. But I don't, I personally think that the thing that is interesting about desire is that none of us would want people to see what it really looks like. None of us would. And that's what okay, I, you know, yeah, when, the, when you the said I... The element of it, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, when, when yeah. you say kind of I enjoy provoking, yeah. I think I don't, it's not that I like to be a provo- provocateur, it's that I like to, you know, I think the, you know, as you say, where did it come from? I don't know, it came from somewhere, yeah. it came from my... My own it must have come from my own desires, my own thoughts, my own private feelings, whatever it is. And so I think what is interesting about that is that, you know, I'm happy to talk about that, which means the conversation is necessarily more honest yeah. and intimate. And so it, it's just really, you know, and, and absolutely, it's not to say that everyone understands necessarily the specifics of it, but the hope is that we at least understand the the feeling behind it and that feeling is one of total madness Mm. i think we've all been of we've all of us been in a moment of just gripped by total insanity voracious need and insanity and so and so yeah it's sort of um it's it is it's an interesting one and it's very fun to watch in a room full of people obviously because people feel very differently. Yes. Every they single person has a different relationship with that moment. Yeah. And so that's kind of thrilling. I mean, Barry's performance is just amazing. I mean, it's really no holds barred. He doesn't, he, he leaves it all out there, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, why was he so right to play Oliver? I think kind of for that reason as well, he's, he is so singular, and that's the thing that I suppose that I want so much that I'm looking for is this, is this sense of that he's able to be, he's sort of a Greek tragic actor in a funny way in that he's completely singular and universal. Mm. He's, you know, when he's at his most vulnerable, you're completely with him. But there's also a part of him that is completely inaccessible and unknowable. And that's really what I, I needed from whoever played Oliver was that they were in many ways, yes, a specific real person, but also kind of part of ourselves too, that was kind of recognisable, even if it wasn't, you know, even if the the person himself wasn't exactly as we are, we might like understand his motives. And that's the thing about Barry is that you've never seen anything like it. Mm -hmm. You've never seen anything like him. So all bets are off. And so when you, you know, when you do shoot a close up of Barry of his, his full face filling the frame it's more enigmatic and complicated in repose than you know a whole like monologue it's he's just fascinating he's endlessly fascinating and he has the most extraordinary range if you think of him in the banshees of Inishirin compared to this yeah. compared to the killing of a sacred deer mm. it's just mind-boggling but he's connected and I think yeah. that's the same with all of the actors and that I've been so lucky to work with, they're all connected, which means there's a kind of, not humanity, but humanness to everything they do. There's something recognisable. There's something kind of messy, complicated and difficult in everything they do. And that's really important to Mm. me. Now, you're still acting as well, of course, because we saw you in Barbie. I'm not allowed (laughs) to talk about it because of the strike. (laughs) Well, we know you're still acting. Should we put it that way? And I wondered how you managed to combine acting with everything else that you do because you direct, you, you write, and how the fact that you're an actor actually helps you in terms of working with other actors and actually feeds into your writing and directing. 
I think all of it comes from the same place, which is kind of trying to communicate a feeling, you know. And so I've, I've been really lucky that I've been able to kind of do it in all in all different in all manner of ways in this in this kind of world. But I think you know, increasingly, particularly working with the actors that I've got to work with on the last two films I think that and having two very young children um increasingly acting is difficult just because it's on somebody else's schedule whereas I sort of you know I'm able to make my own things you know in in my own way which I think is kind of a working mother does make a big difference it's been quite a year for British women directors though and I mean particularly this week with the beef nominations which have been absolutely fantastic but you of course were the first British woman to be nominated for the Best Director Oscar. How much do you feel you were sort of leading the charge with Promising Young Woman? I don't feel like I was leading the charge at all. I feel really, really indebted to the women who've been doing it, been directing for years Mm -hmm. under much, much more difficult circumstances. And I actually think that, you know, I, I owe a huge debt of gratitude and we all do much more to people like Zelda Perkins, you know, who was the first person to break her NDA against Harvey Weinstein. I think that a huge number of us felt that we were, you know, able to, we were, we were empowered by people like her. So, and, and so I just feel, I feel like a recipient actually of all, of lots and lots of other women's hard work rather than somebody leading the charge. So how would you see the future for women filmmakers? I mean, you know, looking at this year alone, it's already, it's just so, it's just so exciting. And also, you know, the variety, the variety of things. People are making romantic comedies, they're making huge studio movies, they're making intimate dramas. It's, it's not only that it's really exciting that women are able, you know, more able to get their movies funded and things. It's they're able to make the sorts of films they want. They're not just one very sort of specific thing that's allowed. They are, you know, they're really, yeah, they're really just starting to talk about, they're, they're, they're able to be creative, mm. to not only talk about their kind of experience, to not only have to just make political work, but to actually just make the kind of work that they want to, which is, you know, an exercise in imagination and joy and, you know, whatever. And whatever actually have is. their own voices as well. Well, yes. and, and so important. It's, and, and to choose their own crew and to make things look the way they want them to look. And that stuff is, you know, it's all just, there's always a long way to go, but it's just so, it's so thrilling to see and so wonderful emerald thank you very much indeed thank you very much well thank you so much emerald for joining us on the podcast i think a first time appearance on the love of cinema Uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again soon for your next movie and thank you frida for covering that interview for us I guess a little peek behind the curtain. I often, in this job, uh, get to do loads of film interviews with people who make films, directors, actors, etc. I love doing it. It's one of my favorite parts of the job. And sometimes you go to the interviews at the same time as your colleagues and peers from other outlets and publications. Frida is someone who I think I exclusively know through meeting at waiting rooms, in hotels and offices and all sorts to talk to people, uh, both with our very similar microphone setup and and all that good stuff. And uh, I love seeing Frida work and I'm so glad that we were able to get her uh, to be on this episode as one of our guest critics and and also to be one of our interviewers. Uh, So pleasure to to sort of finally professionally work together with Frida. But I think she's one of the best interviewers in the biz. Moving swiftly on, our next film, also released in November, is Joanna Hogg's new film, Eternal Daughter. It stars Tilda Swinton and... uh and, and Tilda Swinton, really. It's, uh, I, won't get, uh, I won't get into it uh, too much, but I would love to hear what Frida and Sean made of this new film. Very emotive and, and haunting new film from uh, Joanna Hogg. Mum, we're here. We'd like to check in, please. My mother has a relationship with this house. She was here when she was young. Are we the only people staying here? I don't know. I... 
There was a sound, I'm sure other people have mentioned it to you. Mom? That's strange, because nobody else has mentioned anything at all. So, Eternal Daughter then, what did you make of it? I was actually surprised that we were getting something that was so closely linked to the souvenir and the souvenir too. I mean, there's the obvious links, like it's directed by, you know, Joanna Hogg and it stars Tilda Swinton, but it's actually kind of a partner piece because if you saw Souvenir and Souvenir 2, and I think Souvenir 2 is the better of the two films, um, you had Tilda Swinton's own daughter on a Swinton Burn uh, playing Tilda Swinton's daughter, a girl, um, a girl called Julie, who makes films. In this film, what you get is Tilda Swinton playing the older Julie and Tilda Swinton, as she does in the two souvenir films, also playing the mum. So we're into the many faces of Tilda Swinton, which is something we all know that she can do. But it took me a while, actually, for the penny to drop. And it was only when she said her name was Julie. And I thought, hang on a minute. So I wasn't expecting that sort of, I wouldn't say close connection, but it, it is like a, a sort of companion piece. Because aside from that, it's... I suppose you would call it a ghost story, but actually uh, the ghosts aren't desperately obvious. You get shadowy ghosts. It's set up like a ghost story because you get that phone call at the start and you think, oh, here we go with the ghost story, lots of mist, lots of woodland, countryside and all the rest of it. And then you think, well, actually, where's the ghost then? And you get a shadow at the win window and that's about it. But I thought it did the atmosphere absolutely brilliantly. The atmosphere was fantastic. Well, yeah, what it demonstrated for me was that Joanna Hogg really understands the conventions of the ghost story genre because because the idea of ghosts is, is a very mutable conceit. And very often in a lot of literary and cinematic ghost stories, the ghost is memory. And that's exactly what, what happens here. The idea of memory can transfigure... Uh, one's interpretation of of, of what's happening, uh, and then we see that manifested in the contrasting ages of the, of the mother and the daughter. The fact that this hotel appears to be full of creaks and bangs and strange corners, and maybe alluding to the recesses of memory. And I really loved Joanna Hogg's beyond the atmospheric constraints, which, as you said, are are phenomenal and wreathed in mist and and shadow and suggestion. The it's very moving the idea that one can be haunted by memory i think i i i i really was i was really really knocked out by that i probably didn't like it as much as you did because i kind of felt that although it was really strong on the atmosphere perhaps there wasn't quite enough substance in there for me but curiously enough there is yet another dog that plays a crucial part in it although not what you would expect and that was where I thought the film was doing something quite clever because it was it was almost subverting your expectations of what was to come like the phone call sets you up for a, a traditional ghost story and you don't quite get that you see the dog which by the way happens to be Tilda Swinton's own dog and you think oh well the dog will suss out when there's ghosts not quite so it's it's almost got a slightly sort of mischievous tone to it. It leads you down one path and then it goes, nah, I don't think so, and takes you down another one, which that I actually quite liked, but I just could have done with a little bit more substance to the story, I think. Yeah, I think it reminded me of the opening line of Guillermo del Toro's uh, The Devil's Backbone, which I adore, which is uh, chaos and phantasma, what, what is a ghost? And the idea of that is that is a changeable conceit in the way that different filmmakers can find different contexts for this material. Um, I was really, with, without spoilers, I was really moved by by where the story went. I thought there was character ballast uh, in it and Tilda Swinton pulling double duty is, is a real pleasure as it has been. She's obviously done this going all the way back to like some, you know, Orlando and she, she always does this and it's... Yeah, and the, the the building itself is a real character. Like they, apparently, I looked up. They they shot it in in Wales and in, in Flintshire in Wales, and what what a find! Yeah, and it, it stuck with me. In, in keeping with the themes of the movie, it's actually stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Watching Tilda Swinton is never a problem or a chore. I think she's an extraordinary actress. She's just an absolute treasure. Yeah, she is that. Yeah, and 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 she's excellent in this. I think.
Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Definitely on that one. Thank you, Frida. Thank you, Sean. It's uh, Joanna Hogg. Yeah, I mean, she's a she's an icon of British cinema, and I deeply, deeply enjoyed the souvenir uh, double bill, uh, which she made recently. And Eternal Daughter is something quite different, uh, which I, I also enjoyed. A different uh, flex in a in a different direction uh, from John Hogg, but still just as beautiful as, as those films. Uh, if you were lucky enough to see those. Finally, moving on to our last film of the month, uh, the last film review in our November edition of the podcast. It is Todd Haynes latest film May December another film which premiered at Cannes similar to Anatomy of a Fall uh, which we talked about earlier and Todd Haynes is a really prolific director I mean I should say big fan of his work Carol from about 10 years ago now absolutely wonderful wonderful film uh, Todd Haynes was on the podcast as well uh, a few years ago for his film Dark Waters it came out in 2019 if you haven't seen this I think it got a little bit overshadowed uh, maybe in that award season race or or something else, you know, sort of out at the same time. But Dark Waters is brilliant. I love this film. I highly recommend seeking it out. But of course, first of all, you should seek out Todd's latest film, May December, starring Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman. Let's go over to Frida and Sean to see what they made of the film. How do you choose your roles? I want to find a character that's difficult to on the surface understand. Were they born or were they made? It's such a pleasure to meet you. You are so sweet. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for doing this. It's so generous. Well, I want you to tell the story right, don't I? We're taller, you look taller on television, but we're basically the same size. We're basically the same. Feels like things just settled down and now y'all are making a movie. It's a very complex and human story. I think it's hard to trust that you're going to represent Gracie as she was. I'm going to try. So here we have a film with a rather benign sounding title because we all know what a May-December relationship is supposed to be. And this is sort of, um, but it's nothing like as uh, gentle or as soft as that title might imply. Thank you, Todd Haynes, director, for coming up with that one. <laughs> What did you make of this one, Sean? It's interesting you brought that up because I'd never heard that phrase before until after I saw the film. It's like, oh, that's what the title meant, May-December relationship. I wasn't familiar with that. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. You learn something new every day, don't you? <laughs> yeah, and I thought what you have is is it's a story of almost not maybe not unlike the eternal daughter the the, the idea of, of duality how do you see yourself reflected in in somebody else so you have the central characters played by you know, natalie portman and julianne moore um one is researching the other the other one has evidently peaked and is and is you know gained notoriety for having this relationship with this with this much much younger man and I, it almost reminded me in some ways of an Almodovar, Pedro Almodovar film, um, the idea of what are you seeing manifested in somebody else, which I found it's not done for eerie or spooky effect. It's done for very playful, mischievous effect. This is what Todd Haynes does, plays with genre conventions. Um, I don't know if you thought, if you maybe thought the same. I actually found it quite sinister in some ways. So I was getting shades of sort of, Patricia Highsmith, the talented Mr. Ripley, that's that side of things. There was this all, always this undercurrent that that was slightly sinister that went with it, um, and I think also it it very much has the media in its sights because Julianne Moore's character, who's essentially at the centre of it, is the one who, should we say, causes the backstory, and now has to have a an actress in her home who's going to be playing her in a movie, doing her research. And, of course, it just resurrects it all. And it was an event that caused a massive scandal at the time and was all over the newspapers. And, indeed, a film was made of it, apparently. That's, that's what they say in the film. And you see some of that film. And it looks really schlocky and tacky and tasteless and salacious even actually but 
the strange thing was watching the film, I felt there was a, a lot of open-ended questions about it. And I had this nasty feeling that this film that they're going to make with Natalie Portman isn't actually going to be any better. That, yeah. And I think that was partly because I felt that Natalie Portman's character maybe wasn't a very good actress to start with. Well, yeah, and that, and that I think plays into the idea of that so much of the movie is about resentment. You know, there's, there's resentment, there's jealousy, and I think that Charles, Charles Melton, as, as the young partner, is the standout in the film because he's effectively... He he's effectively abandoned his adolescence and his his late childhood. He he's gone without, and now he's got children of his own with Julianne Moore's character, and he's seeing reflected again the idea of reflection. He's seeing reflected in them something that he will never have, and that melancholy there, which I think offsets against the more sinister elements that you've mentioned, the, the sort of the slightly more heightened elements that I thought. I thought the, the Patricia Highsmith, again, to link it back to Saltburn, yeah, there's a lot of Patricia Highsmith influence flying around in, in films at, at the moment, I think. And yeah, I thought, I like Todd Haynes, the filmmaker. I love I'm Not There. I thought I'm Not There was, was, was fantastic. And I think this isn't quite as experimentally audacious as that, but lots to chew over, I think, in this. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with you on Charles Melton because you you get the sense that he's absolutely desperate to escape, but he knows he can't and he's absolutely yeah. trapped. Well, there we go. That brings us to the end of the November edition of The Love of Cinema. Four fantastic films for you to chew on as you're deciding what to see at the cinema this month. Of course, there are other films out in cinemas, but these four films are a really good place to start. It's been really great to hear Frida and Sean discuss them. Also great to hear Emerald Fenelon to talk about Saltburn. What we like to do, though, one of my favourite bits of this podcast, uh, as we have a revolving door of, of guest critics come on each month, is to ask them what films are currently in cinemas that they'd recommend, and after that what films they're looking forward to for the rest of the year. Uh, just to sort of, I don't know, yeah, like see see what people are excited by. Um, it's one of my favourite conversations to have with my friends, and hopefully you'll enjoy this bit too. So, Frida, in terms of what's currently still out in the cinemas, what would you recommend? Uh, small film, niche film, probably a little bit quirky as well. Typist, artist, pirate king. You might have to work hard to ser search this one out, but it is most definitely worth it. All about a pretty much unknown artist called Audrey Amos, who um, was trained at the Royal Academy and then spent an awful lot of her life in and out of mental institutions. This is a fictionalised story which takes her on a road trip with her nurse. And the big thing about this, quite apart from the fact that if you've never heard of Audrey Amos, you will see some of her amazing work. But the big thing about this is Monica Dolan's performance as Audrey. It's absolutely the performance of a lifetime. She gets her volatility. She gets her vivid imagination, her naivety. And she's such a volatile character, and yet there are times when she has these moments of absolute, pure, unadulterated joy that are unique to her because of her condition. should also mention there Kelly MacDonald as well, who plays her nurse, who has the softness and gentleness that the film actually needs to balance it. So that one actually came out at the end of October. It's in cinemas now. Do go and see it because it is so worth your time and your money. So, Sean, what would you perhaps go and see again in cinemas at the moment? Well, I feel like I need to book out some time to watch Killers of the Flower Moon again because there is so much to feast on. Um, all three and a half hours of it, um, obviously, um, as, as has been widely reported, new Martin Scorsese epic adapted from David Grant's extraordinary book, which I would recommend that people read. And what Scorsese has done is he has effectively reconfigured the structure of the book specifically around the Osage um, experience because it's based on the early 20th century Osage tragedy in uh, early 20th century Oklahoma where 
They, the Osage Nation suddenly found themselves oil rich when they weren't expecting to. They then became among the wealthiest citizens in America and then they started dying uh, en masse in very mysterious circumstances. And Scorsese, um, working with his regular collaborators like cinematographer Rodrigo Prieto and editor Thelma Schoonmaker, who are both of whom, of course, do an extraordinary job, um, late, late composer Robbie Robertson as well, they re- reconfigure the story in a way that actually it both puts the Osage front and centre and it also changes the dramatic emphasis. But it's a Scorsese film. There's a lot, there's a lot to feast on. There's a lot to enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of what's coming out uh, over the next few months, what's caught your attention? Oh, well, I've gone really epic. There's actually some quite good films coming up uh, between now and the end of the year, but this one really whets my appetite. You just put the words historical epic and Ridley Scott together and you've got the recipe for something big and something special. And that's why I'm looking forward to Napoleon because he is one of the few directors that can really get to grips with the complexity of an epic, with the look of it, with the themes and the context. I mean, we've got Gladiator 2 to come at some stage as well. But in the meantime, we've got Joaquin Phoenix coming up on screen uh, in the title role of Napoleon. But what I'm really looking forward to in this one, especially after the last duel, which was Ridley Scott's most recent epic, is seeing Vanessa Kirby as Josephine, because I think Napoleon's going to have his hands full with her, uh, you know, quite apart from ruling France and taking over most of Europe as well. But there's there's obviously going to be some big set pieces with this one, battle scenes. Um The thing that makes me curious also about Napoleon is that uh, given his place in history, he's not had many films about made about him. In fact, I think the most recent one where he was a lead character was in 1970, and that was the film Waterloo with Rod Steiger as Napoleon. But for now, well, we've got Joaquin Phoenix charging into cinemas on the 22nd of November. Go on then, what's what's your pick of what's coming up then, Sean? Uh, well, I'm going to have to go with Hayao Miyazaki's reputedly final film, The Boy and the Heron. We all know that he has, <laughs> he's announced his retirement, I think, two or three times before. And he and he's <laughs> subsequently announced that this might be his final film again. We'll wait and see if that's true. But either way, the uh, arrival of a new Miyazaki film is always cause for celebration uh, so it, it's an Im- it implicitly refers to a uh, 1937 novel of the same name although apparently it is only a loose adaptation classic um studio ghibli sort of parable um invoking the the connection between life and death magic um nature um man mankind's um connection with nature which has obviously been at the heart of so many of the studio's films uh, recently we've had the uh, um announcement of the english dub cast which includes luminaries such as robert pattinson Gemma chan christian bale mark hamill who has um voiced um certain ghibli dubs before florence Pugh, willem defoe and dave batista and i'm thinking wow if that's not a heavyweight english dub for <laughs> Miyazaki's final film then yeah I'm it looks sumptuous Uh, at the point of recording I haven't seen it yet but I am really really excited to champion one of animation's greatest masters that is a staggering voice cast it really really is is. that's amazing yeah so Frida where can people find you online well, they can find me on various social me- media uh, under the tag or handle at Frida Talking Picks. If you're into radio, then I'm the uh, film critic for BBC Surrey and Sussex. Every Friday morning, you hear my views on the latest uh, new films in cinemas. I'm sometimes on Five Live as well for their film review slot. And uh, I write for all sorts of various sites and do interviews as well. Um, So you can find me on Yahoo Movies, you can find me on What to Watch, Sci-Fi Now, People's Movies, um, and also in Film Stories magazine, um, which obviously is a magazine as opposed to a website. Uh, Again, mainly interview features, mainly with sort of up-and-coming British filmmakers, which is quite different to some of the the better-known names that I get to interview for Yahoo. So I, I sort of... I probably spread myself too thinly, but hey, it's fun. (laughs) And Sean, where can we find you? 
Um, so you can find me on Twitter at SeanO22 and on Instagram at SeanFilmWriter. And uh, I am a um, freelance journalist with various outlets. I'm also the author um, of The Sound of Cinema, Hollywood film music from the silence to the present day. So those who've heard me talking about film music in the course of these movies will understand <laughs> why that is. Um, it's uh, And that book is an epic odyssey through um, the, the history of film music as a medium because it is my passion. But I'm also the co-host of um, uh, Frame to Frame Pods, uh, frame, uh, at frames frame pods and uh, scoreheads podcast as well so you can find us on all the relevant uh, podcast channels okay well that wraps it up for another episode of the love of cinema i must say a big thank you to sean wilson and frida cooper for being our guest critics always a pleasure to hear your voices uh, do check out their work as mentioned towards the end I didn't know Sean had written a book uh, about film music though Sound of Cinema I'm going to be checking that out and always a pleasure to hear Frida's interviews one of the best in the biz must also say a big thank you to Emerald Fennel for stopping by to talk about Saltburn such a charismatic interviewee and, and such a talented writer, director and actor. Of course, she started as an actor and then moved in to directing. But uh, you may have seen her very briefly uh, in this year's Barbie uh, playing Midge. Um, <laughs> little Easter egg for you there. The Love of Cinema is a stripped media production. Big thank you to Kobe for running the production on this. And I must say a big thank you to Laura for editing the show. Uh, definitely for putting up with my waffle and making everyone sound fantastic for listings for picture house cinemas check out picturehouses.com and as mentioned earlier follow picture houses on at picture houses on all social media platforms you can send questions tag us in photos we love to see all that stuff if you're on a podcast service such as spotify or apple Podcasts, which allows ratings and reviews please 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 we love those we love to hear feedback and we love to see star ratings it helps others discover the show uh, please drop us a rating and if you feel inclined please subscribe uh, as well as these monthly editions of the podcasts these monthly review shows we also have interview specials dropping on the feed as and when people become available Recently, we had Emma Seligman on to talk about Bottoms. We had Kitty Green on to talk about Royal Hotel, uh, films that came out at the very start of November. Um, we had the costume designers from Martin Scorsese's Killers to the Flower Moon. We've had all sorts. We're very lucky with our guests, and we do love doing those interviews. So those often drop as mini-episodes, and its best way to see those is to just subscribe. And again, it means you'll never miss an episode. Right, I have gone on for far too long, so thank you so much enjoy whatever you end up watching this november at your local picture house and we'll see you in december thank you goodbye goodbye